Good morning, everyone. Sorry we're getting a little bit of a late start, but we had lots of excitement and extra women signing up this morning. So we're so, so, so thankful that you are all here. Uh, I would just like to welcome you. For those of you that don't know me, I am Pam Larson, and I serve the women here at the North Church. And I am just delighted that you are all here. Uh, we do have snacks that are available, uh, and coffee and tea and water. So please feel free to get up and to move around if you would like this morning and get some more snacks. I have a couple of announcements before we start, and then I'll pray. Um, our Equip Parenting Conference is coming up on February 16th and 17th, and if you have not had the chance to register for that yet, you can still do so through Wednesday, February 7th. And this conference will include encouragement for both parents and grandparents. So my husband and I are signed up because we want to be good Mimi and Papa. Uh, so you can still uh, register uh, until Wednesday. So you can register at the northchurch.com slash parenting. And there are postcards, I believe, back on the table there. And I think I even saw Diane is here. And so you could talk to Diane as well, and she might be able to help you. So uh, the other announcement that I want to make is that on Wednesday morning, our class offers children's programming for little ones who come with their mamas to Bible study. And Maggie Sporleader is our coordinator, and she tells me that we are in need of more adult volunteers to care for the children on Wednesday mornings. And so if you would consider whether you could do that maybe even once or twice in the next couple of months during Bible study, we meet February, March, and April. And so that's a lot of Wednesdays to fill. If you could do a few of those, that would be great. Um, you need to get, uh, she, you can call her. There's a little card back there that has her number and her email on it so that you could reach her if you are interested in helping with that. We also need volunteers for moms on Tuesday mornings, and they meet twice a month on Tuesday mornings. So if you would like to help out with that, we would love to have you help. So I would like to pray before we start, and then I'd like to tell you a little bit about how Bible study works here at the North Church. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for the excitement that there is in this room about digging into your word. I thank you for our biblical authors who have written books like Job for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you this morning as we get a little overview and some information that will just help us be excited to be immersed in this book over the next few months. So I thank you for being with us here this morning. I thank you for each woman who has come. And I just pray that you would open our ears and, and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you are not signed up yet for our study of Job, and you're here just to ponder that. And I just want to say I'm really glad that you're here just to consider it. And no pressure, okay, to sign up. But in case you've never done Bible study here at the North Church, I wanted to let you know a little bit about how Bible study works. So that if you do decide to come, you kind of know what the lay of the land is. For me, I like to know before I go what's going to happen. So our, the way we approach uh, women's Bible study here at the North Church is kind of with what I call kind of a three or four tiered approach. And that is we have a workbook where you do homework at home, and then you come together 
in person, or sometimes we have actually women who are doing this study with granddaughters that live far away. So you could do your own little small group through FaceTime if you want. So the next prong is discussion, where you come together with your sisters in Christ and just talk about what you've lear been learning. We pray together, and then we also have a time where we come back together as a large group, and then we hear a teaching message that kind of helps answer some questions and just kind of solidifies some things in our hearts before we go dive into the next chapter where we're doing homework. So I want to mention something about the homework in this study. This is where you prayerfully study the passage at home. And about this Job study, you know, God in his wisdom has given us this very long book. There's 42 chapters, and it's for our good. And so while some lessons might consist of many more chapters than you're used to studying in a lesson, my goal is to expose you to the whole book of Job without it turning into a multi-year study. Okay? We're not going to go you know, verse by verse expositionally and spending, you know, 10 years in Job. So, but I don't want you to be overwhelmed with the sheer volume of reading that there are on some weeks, okay? So you can, there's, there's all kinds of helpful things you could do. You can, you, you know, with this little device that you might have in your pocket, you could click a little rectangle on here and you can hear the Bible being read to you while you're walking or doing the dishes or folding your laundry. And if you struggle to do your lesson, just do as much as you can and come. So in our discussion groups, we, our aim is to foster life-giving, Christ-centered, beneficial conversations around and centered on the book of Job. So class members will be sharing what they're learning from others around the table. And this table time is not meant to cover every aspect of each lesson, but just cover as much as possible. And women are encouraged to share their insights. And a discussion leader is at each table to facilitate that discussion. And that person is not there to answer all your questions, just so you know that. But we want to help each other to see the sufficiency of God's grace and then to be able to share your thoughts with each other, to sharpen one another. And then prayer is another aspect of our time together. If you did not have a chance to read Pastor Stephen's article that was published at Desiring God last week, I would encourage you to take five minutes and read that. Here's a little snippet from it for encouragement. He said, we hear and see more of Christ through fellow believers, especially through their prayers. Praying with others is a gift that God gives us for the benefit of our faith. It enlivens our minds, it strengthens our hearts, and empowers our hands. No Christian runs well alone. No believer stands alone. No child of God fights alone and lives. So devote yourselves to prayer. Let Jesus knit your heart together with others through adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. He said, praying together fans the flames of joy. So what might God do in your church, in our Bible study, if you committed to praying more together? And then the fourth component of our time together is a teaching message. This is usually a 25 or 30 minute time together as a large group, and we wrap the lesson up in a way that might answer some of your questions, and it might spur you on to see the gospel and apply the passage in our lives. And then this message is recorded for those that can't join us in person. So many of you in this room are signed up to do the study independently. 
where you do your homework at home and maybe you have a friend you might call on the phone to discuss it with and then you turn on you know wherever you get your podcast or YouTube and then you can listen to the teaching after we send you the link out in the email that we send the, uh, out after class. So, um, and then that brings me to the final thing is that we do send an email out every week, usually on Thursday or Friday, and it has links to the recording of the teaching and it has sometimes some notes. It also will have a handout if the teacher has a handout that will be there in a PDF form. So be sure to read your email each week because it, it's a way for you to stay informed and to keep current, even if you miss class for some reason. You can just watch or listen, and you can do that while you're folding laundry too or going for a walk. So, all right. How many of you have ever studied the book of Job? Oh, a couple of you have, see? That's great. But I bet for the vast majority of you, you might have been intimidated by the book of Job. I mean, it's long, right? Anybody know how many chapters? 42, right? Uh, how about maybe the intense suffering that Job experiences? It's a lot, right? It's kind of a heavy book, right? And the middle section of the book is, is poetry, right? And so if you're not trained in how to read poetry, you might be intimidated because there's images that you just don't understand. And I, I, I think those three reasons for me are why I hadn't studied Job up until this point in my life either. So this is, I, I am eager to dive in with you and to learn. And I am really delighted that we have someone with us this morning who's going to help us to, as we dive into these waters of Job. I'm delighted that Dr. Christian Ratza, did I say it right? Okay. I'll, we'll call him Dr. Chris right? <laughs> but he's here with us this morning, and he's going to encourage us as we begin. Dr. Chris was born in a beautiful mountain town in the western part of Romania. He was blessed to grow up in a very strong Christian family. Although he grew up under communism, the church he was a part of was very much alive. And when he was a teen, his father escaped the communist Romania and was able to make it to the U.S. where his brother lived. So after a year, Chris, his siblings, and mother were able to be re reunited with their father in Los Angeles, California, where they made their new home. And so from 1986 to 89, Dr. Chris lived in LA, and in 1989, he started his studies at the University of California, San Diego, where he studied computer science. And during his college studies, he took a class in the Old Testament that shifted his direction from computer science to biblical languages. And so after graduating from UCSD, he pursued a master in Old Testament studies from Gordon-Conwell. And since he loves studying, he continued his studies in Toronto, Canada, where he studied Hebrew language and literature. And after his second master, he pursued a PhD in Hebrew language and Semitic languages. His dissertation was on the verbal system in the book of Job. Hence, his love, love for the book of Job. Chris loves God's word. If you could say that he has a favorite part of scripture, that would be the wisdom literature. One thing he likes to do on a daily basis is to memorize psalms in Hebrew. How many of you do that? <laughs> I know a couple of words. Shalom. <laughs> 
And actually, Dr. Chris taught me to say one of the benedictions in the Passover Seder, but I can't remember it. <laughs> I didn't memorize it very well. Well, back to his personal life. He met his wife, Ika, on a mission trip in Moldova. They met at a well. <laughs> well, like, like, like all biblical characters, right? <laughs> right? Isaac, you know, Rebecca, okay. Well, actually, not really at a well. But he met and connected with her at first by bringing water that came from a region by her hometown. They got married less than a year later in L.A., and again, in less than a year, they moved to South Korea, where he started teaching in a seminary there. They lived in Korea for 15 years, where all their four children were born. Now, Chris works now with Training Leaders International, that's TLI, where he teaches Old Testament to pastors and students in countries around the world. And in fact, he just returned from a trip this week. And when he's back here in the U.S., his office is downtown, and he usually bikes to work every day unless it's 10 below. And besides biking, he loves hiking and fishing. Would you please welcome Dr. Chris? Uh, thank you very much uh, for such a wonderful introduction. I never heard such a wonderful introduction. <laughs> like, uh, like somebody said, uh, I can't wait to hear myself speak <laughs> after, after such an introduction. So I'm copying that reply from somebody else. And uh, another one of my favorite uh, replies after such an introduction is from a, a, a mentor of mine who used to say, now I have to say two prayers, one for Pam because she praised the man, and one for me because I liked it. No. <laughs> so I don't know, but these, these are all the you know, things I learned from others who were introduced. And uh, as, as, as you shall see, uh, most of the things I say actually is really borrowed from other people. So uh, you know, uh, I'm just trying to, to hopefully give you some information that I learned from others that is useful for you because uh, as Pam already mentioned, uh, we, are, we are dealing with a beautiful book. It's a, it's a very tough book, but uh, we pray that God opens our eyes to see wonderful things from this, this book, and uh, may, may, may you guys be edified. May, may all of us be edified. So please open your, your Bibles, if you have your Bible, to the book of Job. I'm just going to read a few verses. And again, uh, now since I lower your expectations, just wanna, just wanna let you know that most of this uh, lecture is gonna just kind of try to point you out to to some of the questions, and help us uh, ask the right questions about this book, which again is a is a great book. So I liked when Pam mentioned that uh, it's not gonna be one year old, uh, one year long. I remember recently I was listening to to Derek Thomas speak about the Book of Job, and he he mentioned something that. Uh, was very surprising to me. Somebody preached on the book of Job for 23 years. So this, this apparently was the, the, the preacher, I can't remember his name, right before John Owen, which is a very famous uh, theologian. He preached for 23 years in his church, and uh, Derek Thomas did say that his church dwindled. So, you know. <laughs> So, uh, but, but, you know, you, you, you can imagine somebody, you know, you, you can imagine somebody, you know, going into some other country for 20 years, comes back to church, and pastor is still in the book of Job. <laughs> so, uh, 
Related to that is, of course, John Calvin, who preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. Again, something I don't think we can sustain in, in our church, right? It's, it's too long, right? So let, let's open our, our Bibles to the book of Job, uh, chapter 1. Just, just going to read about 12 verses, so, so again, just to have it fresh in our minds. Job, chapter 1, uh, verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV version. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, or Satan, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, again for your word, for this beautiful book, for, for uh, your grace and goodness. Again, please open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. And again, we pray that you edify your, your church, edify all of us, and may your name be glorified. Amen. 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 So uh, the first thing, of course, uh, that is important to say about the book of Job, as we see from the first verse, is that the book of Job is about a wise person. Because if you look at the, the, the verse that I read, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, or maybe a better translation was a man of integrity. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but he was a man of integrity. And of course, he was upright, he feared God, and turned away from evil. This is a very, very good definition of a sage in the Old Testament. Like if you look at the book of Proverbs, and there are, there are a few texts, you can see that a characteristic of a sage is that, of course, that he fears God and turns away from evil. So this book is a book about a person who is wise. And here in our handout, I do want to start with, uh, with a few definitions. And... Uh, Again, looking, looking back at the handout, I should have started with some praise for the book of Job, and uh, may, maybe I'll just backtrack a little bit and, and start with a small story about this person, Thomas Carlyle. As you, as you can see, Thomas Carlyle said that this is one of the grandest things ever written with pen. A noble book, 
all man's book. And Daniel Webster, the most wonderful poem of any age and language. And when I was in Toronto, I do remember Toronto Star published a book of 100 most famous works ever written. And uh, uh, believe it or not, the book of Job was there. But the point is, the book of Job, there's a lot of praise. And I, I just introduced a little bit of praise about the book of Job. A lot of people praise the book. At the same time, uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't praise the book. I remember when I was studying this book in, uh, in graduate school, a young woman came to me and told me that she kind of felt sorry for me for studying the book of Job. But, you know, that, that's how she felt. You know, it is a sad, it is a depressing book for many people. But uh, in general, there's also a lot of praise. And there's a story about Thomas Carlyle. And uh, I, I just heard a long time ago, apparently he was invited uh, for a meal at somebody's house. And the guests, uh, the host asked him to, to lead the devotions. And as you guess, he, he opened to the book of Job. So he started reading the first chapter of Job, started reading the second chapter, or the third chapter, and you did not guess it, he finished the whole book. He read the whole book. That's how the story goes. I don't know if he was ever invited back. I'm sure if he was invited back, he would never ask to lead the devotions. But, but one point that uh, I think it's, it's important for all of, all of us who study the book of Job is if you have time during this time that you study the book, uh, maybe spend one Sunday, maybe during the Super Bowl, when that's, or, you know, or maybe after the Super Bowl, I don't know. Uh, and you know, try, uh, try to read the whole book in one, one sitting. Again, it's going to take you, you know, uh, several hours, but uh, it is doable. So uh, I think uh, that, that's the point Thomas Carlyle was trying to make. You know, if you read the book of Job and you study it, try at least once or maybe twice to read the whole book. A uh, second point that uh, is kind of related to this, of course, uh, just, just go ahead and follow the, the handbook that you're using for this class. So try to read sections. And again, we will go to, back to this a little bit later. But now, going back to the book, this is undoubtedly uh, a wisdom book. And before we describe what wisdom literature is, uh, we do have to see this basic definition of wisdom, because uh, we have to define wisdom. And I think this is the best definition I've ever, I've ever seen. It is skill for life. It's very, very simple. Because you read very complicated uh, definitions about wisdom, sometimes two, three paragraphs. But if you really want to define wisdom very, very simple, it is skill for life, or even, even simple. It's really about life. It's about the good life. It teaches you how to live the good life, how to navigate life well. And in that case, uh, of course, if you go a little bit further, uh, you know, you can say that wisdom has uh, three, three aspects. It has a, a social aspect. So wisdom is about, uh, one famous scholar said it's about EQ. Many times when we think about wisdom, in, we think about intelligence, we think about IQ. But Tremper Lohman, I think, makes a, makes a strong point. No, it's not about IQ, it's about EQ, what's usually called emotional quotient. It's how to live life skillfully. So there's this social aspect for wisdom. But, and this is very important for biblical wisdom, there's also, as it says in your note, there's also an ethical aspect. In other words, in the Bible, you cannot be wise until you're also good, or we would say righteous. That's why when you read the book of Proverbs, and I know you studied the book of Proverbs, I'm sure you were struck how many times this word is repeated, righteous, righteousness, righteousness. 
because, uh, and it starts at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, you know, uh, this, this is written for righteousness, uprightness, and equity. You cannot be a wise person in the Bible unless you're also good or righteous. So there's the ethical aspect. And of course, there's also the theological aspect because the biblical wise person, just as we see with Job here, fears God. This is the theological aspect, and this is repeated many times in the book of, in the book of Proverbs, and, and as you shall see also in the book of, uh, of Job. But this is why wisdom is about skill for navigating life well. And that brings us to the second point, which is about wisdom literature. So what is wisdom literature? Uh, wisdom literature usually, uh, as you know, uh, it refers, in, in general, when people talk about wisdom literature, they talk about these three books in the Bible, Proverbs, which you already studied. Uh, and I think it's great that you move from Proverbs to Job because Proverbs is the introductory level. Proverbs is the wisdom 101. And now you kind of move to wisdom uh, 201. And if you go to Ecclesiastes, another, another fun book, maybe that's next, I don't know. Uh, so Ecclesiastes, that's also wisdom 201 or maybe 301. But, but usually uh, Proverbs is seen as the most basic wisdom literature. And the reason, of course, because it teaches us how to navigate life well. And another reason why, it, why, why all these three books are classified with wisdom literature is because of their vocabulary. So as you shall see when you study the book of Job, but especially you saw when you study the book of Proverbs, this word appears a lot, wisdom. And Hebrew is chokhmah. So again, just to, to, to teach a few, a few Hebrew words. So the, the root is chakam, chakam. So in the book of Proverbs, it appears over 100 times, chakam. Then you look in the book of Ecclesiastes about 50, 53 times. And then in the book of Job, believe it or not, it appears about maybe 28 times this root. But it's not just about vocabulary. But that's something you might want to watch out in the book of Proverbs. Let's see how much it talks about wisdom. And of course, uh, this is just one word. There are other words, understanding. There's the word fool, right? But the book of Job is a book primarily about wisdom. This is a dispute about wisdom. And the dispute is about who understands the best why somebody suffers. So obviously, this is a very important thing because I have it here in my notes. So I think I have to be here. But this, uh, we heard about Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel commissioned George Barna to conduct a nationwide survey. The survey included the question, if you could ask God only one question, and you knew he would give you an answer, why would, what would you ask? That was the question that uh, Lee Strobel was interested to find out. And guess what the, the, the question was? 17% of those who could think of a question was this, why is there pain and suffering in the world? This was the, the most common question. And uh, most, uh, most people simply want answer to questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? And here just a parenthesis, uh, just because I like uh, R.C. Sproul's answer, he says, that never happened, only happened once, and that person volunteered. So. I think, I think you get it, I, I think it's true. I think this is a wrong question from, from a point of view of, of a Christian who believes uh, that uh, in suffering and who believes the Christian doctrines. 
It never happened that an innocent person suffered only once, and that one uh, volunteered, of course, was Jesus Christ. But the book of Job does uh, address this, this question and this issue about suffering. It teaches us how to suffer well. In fact, a, a book, uh, uh, I'd be happy to, to give you, and maybe you already have it in your notebook, uh, like just a small bibliography, but a very recent book was published by Dane Ortland. It's called, uh, also looking at the book of Job, it's like, uh, and it was pointed to, to me actually by Brian Tubb. Uh, it's called, uh, it's a how, to, how to Suffer Well. It teaches us how to suffer well. But, uh, but the book of Job obviously does address this important question. It's about a person who is in great suffering and is a person who does not deserve to suffer uh, as much as he suffers. Even if, even if you do believe, as we do, that he is sinful, just like everybody else, there's no doubt that from the, the passage that we read, that he is presented as a person of integrity, a person who fear God and turn away from evil, and it's not presented just by the narrator, but God himself, if you look at the introduction, twice says, have you seen my servant Job? This is an example, a paragon of virtue is presented by that, like that by the book. So it is addressing a very, very important question that a lot of people ask. And I think the book of Job does teach us how to suffer well. So again, if wisdom is about living well, in our life, as you know, we also will encounter suffering. If, if you don't encounter suffering now, uh, you know, uh, uh, you can just say, just wait a little bit, you're gonna get a little bit older, and you, you will encounter suffering, and I, I know many of you are, are, are older here, and you are encountering suffering, so uh, it does teach us how to suffer well, so that's why it belongs to wisdom too. But again, if you look carefully, there's a dispute about wisdom. One of my favorite passages is in Job, I believe it's chapter 12, verse one, where at one point Job tells uh, his friends, he says something like this, he says, indeed, he says, you are the people, and with you, Wisdom shall die. Job is suffering, but he has a sense of humor. He's ironic to his friends. He says, yeah, indeed, you guys know everything. You guys know all the answers why I'm suffering. You're wrong, actually. But you, you're so smart. If you guys die, wisdom is going to die with you. Right? And, and, and again, another point that we will be making, uh, a key passage in this whole book, it's Job chapter 28. I'm sure it's going to be made. Uh, and and we, we may get uh, there. But in Job 28, it's a, it's a chapter about wisdom. The whole chapter is about wisdom. Where shall wisdom be found? Right, another great question. And, and, and studies, the recent studies, you know, liberal scholarship used to say it was added later, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why the narrator put it there. But now, now the, the studies uh, take a more holistic approach to the book and, and a lot of commentators notice this is central to the whole book, chapter 28. Leo Beck, a, a rabbi, actually thinks that the most important part is not the introduction, is not the speeches of God, but it's actually that chapter. Now, he may be or he may not be right, but the chapter is a chapter about wisdom. And again, so this is a book about wisdom, and it belongs to wisdom literature because it teaches us how to suffer well, I think. Uh, and, you know, just parenthetically, I, I also include a song of songs there with a question mark because not everybody accepts it. 
but I do believe the Song of Songs is a book of wisdom. And again, recent studies, uh, uh, there's a lady, Jennifer, I can't remember her last name, just did her PhD at Cambridge University, arguing that the book of Song of Songs, it's a, it's a wisdom book. And I, I, I knew that before her thesis, or I, I, I believe that too, but now she, she did a very serious study. But again, I don't think you have to do a PhD for this. The, the point is the Book of, Song, of Songs is teaching us how to love well, whether you take it that to love your husband or wife or you to love God or Christ or both. You know, is, is anything more important in life than to know how to love, to love God and your spouse well, right? That's also part of wisdom, wisdom right? So I would include Song of Songs and of course some selective Psalms are also classified as wisdom. But these are some, some things that we have to think about as we look at the book of Job. So think about the importance of wisdom and the importance of how to suffer well. Another, another way this book is uh, used for, it's used for this question of theodicy, which of course is related. And I define for you here one way to define theodicy. Theodicy is the defense of the justice of God in spite of the evils in God's creation. But again, uh, and here I do have a, a handout for you. There's another handout on theodicies, and don't worry, I, I will not go through this. Just want to draw your attention. Theodicy is a relatively new word. <clears throat> it comes from, uh, from Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. And the first time, apparently, the word was used in 1710. In a book he wrote in French, as you can, say, uh, as you can see, Essai de Théodicée. So that's the word in English for theodicy. And it's a book, the only book, uh, major book of philosophy. Again, some of you may recognize the name. I think he was a mathematician. He was a scientist. But he did write a major book on philosophy. And uh, it was a discussion that he had with Sophie Charlotte, the Queen of Prussia. And he was discussing God's goodness, free will, and the origin of evil. And here is for the first time this word appears, theodicy. As you can see here, it's formed from two Greek words, theos and uh, decay, which means justice. So basically, it has to do with the justice of God. right? Because this is a question that is raised by the book of Job. So again, uh, I, I do read, try to read as much as I can on wisdom literature, and uh, Tramper Lohman, who wrote a, a good book about that, uh, he's retired now, but he, all his life, he wrote a wisdom literature, he says that uh, it's not about theodicy, it's about wisdom. But I don't think you have to separate the two. I think they're, they're both related. It is about theodicy. Because you will, you will see at the end of the book, uh, when God appears to Job, he asks him, who is this? The ones kind of to come out that he is just that I'm wrong. So this question about the justice of God, even though the term theodicy appears in 1710, there's no question that the book, the, the justice of God was questioned a long time ago, more, more clearly by Job. Job does question the justice of God. He doesn't question the omnipotence of God, but he seems to question the justice of God. And this is a concern of the whole Bible. The first time when we hear about the justice of God in the Bible, I think it's Abraham in chapter 18 in Genesis when he says, he puts this question, when God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he puts this question, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right, right? And the answer is, yes, he will do what is right. 
But this, this is a question that it is, uh, appears uh, uh, at times in the Bible about the justice of God. And that's what theodicy is about. And, and you, you see here, uh, these are the fundamental premises on which the question of theodicy comes, right? Everybody knows there is one God. So this is monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism. This God represents goodness and justice. We believe that. This God has power in this world and suffering and evil are a reality in this world. So if we accept these four things, so this is a brief notes on theodicy, if you have your, your, your handout. So I will not go over it, but again, uh, this is how a few definitions. So you, you can even look at it in a philosophical way, philosophical study of the relation of God and evil. Or you can look at it more like from a lawyer point of view, kind of the defense of the justice of God in spite of the evils in God's creations. And perhaps the one at the bottom is any attempt to render suffering and evil intelligible. And I think this is what, what is happening in the book of Job, is trying to help us understand something about the, the justice of God. Right? And uh, on the back, on the back again, briefly, I will not go through all of this. But the reason I gave you this is that as you study the book of Job, try to see if any one of these seven theodicies maybe may explain a passage or may explain Job's suffering or maybe a combination of them. But just to look at the first one first, uh, because this is the most common in the Bible, is the so-called retrib retribution theodicy. This is the one that Job's friends are going to talk about. So Job's friends mainly have this explanation of Job's suffering. Job, you are suffering because you must have done something wrong, either you or your children. Now, now you know, we, we sometimes accuse, accuse the, the friends, and we should because they are wrong, of course, in this case. But the truth is, this is a, this is a very common way that the Bible talks about, uh, about suffering uh, and, and, and bad things that happen in our life. And just because they're wrong in this case, we must not conclude that this is always wrong. This is very important. Because as you saw in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs repeats this many times. And of course, you have some text here, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. They teach over and over again in the Bible, if you choose to do well, if you obey God, you will be blessed, just like Job is blessed. If you do bad, if you do evil, you will be punished. This is something we teach our children, and this is something that happens over and over again, most of the time, even in today's life. Apostle Paul says in New Testament, you reap what you sow. Well, this is a very common and very a very, very good explanation for suffering very many times. Let's not discount that. But, and this is a part of our wisdom from this book, it doesn't apply all the time, and it doesn't apply many times. So I was talking recently, uh, I actually taught a recent class on, on evil and suffering in Korea. And, you know, I, I learned a lot because uh, I really don't know that much about this, but part of, the, part of one lecture, I invited a friend of mine a friend of mine, uh, David Lupash from Westminster, California, he's about 47 year old. Uh, when he was 13, he had an accident. So he was 13, he was a great swimmer, very, very smart, smart person. 
he had an accident and he's been in a wheelchair from 13 to, to 47. He's still in a wheelchair. But uh, I asked him kind of to give his testimony about how he, he dealt with this suffering and this tragedy. Again, again, most of you are probably familiar with Johnny, Johnny and France, you know, great, great example. Read everything you can from her. A woman who suffered greatly, again, she had an accident, similar accident when she was 17. And now her ministry is just all over the world helping people who are suffering. But, uh, but this friend of mine uh, also uh, told me that sometimes people came to him, and especially after his accident, and uh, were trying to give him this retribution kind of theodicy. Well, somebody must have done something evil, or your parents or something, you know? And again, obviously that's very, very unwise, as we shall see. While this is true, it doesn't apply everywhere, and it doesn't apply in this case. But it's one, one way that the Bible and many times it applies in our lives, right? If we, if we, if we drink a lot of alcohol and then uh, you know, our, our liver you know, uh, gets, uh, gets sick or we get sick uh, after a while, it's kind of, a, of this, this retribution principle that is in, it's, it's built in the creation of God. So that there's truth here. I won't spend too much time about this because you get the point, but there are there other, other theodicies, uh, influence of demonic forces. There's the educative theodicy. Does this apply to the book of Job? Think, think about that. Again, demonic forces, you, you can read about that. You, you know what that is about. Some of the bad things that happen in the world are explained because of the, the devil and, and his servant. But uh, does educative theodicy apply here in the book of Job? So think about that. Uh, I don't know, but this is again a major one. We find it in the New Testament too. Right, uh, you see here, I, I give you a text from, uh, from uh, the book of Hebrews, which actually is quoting Proverbs chapter 3. That God sometimes disciplines us through suffering, and uh, that has a, has a positive effect makes us uh, maybe more humble, maybe more gentle. And uh, again, that's something you, uh, maybe you should think about as you study the book of Job, especially Job 42, I put there one through six. But this is something that we do find in the Bible, and I think it does apply many times. God may use suffering or adversity in our life to educate us, to make us either humble, humbler or wiser or both, or, you know, to bring us closer to him. Uh, that also uh, it appears in the Bible and, and may be part of the book of Job. I think it is, but again, think about that. Uh, I'm jumping to the number five again. Look at number number four. It's number four may probably doesn't apply very much to the book of Job, but it, but it is there. But I'm jumping to number five, the theodicy deferred or the mystery of suffering. This, I think, is also very, very important. The mystery of suffering, and I think, uh, and think about that, does this apply to the book of Job? I think it does. Uh, I think it does. And I think that's part of Job 28, whereas the book of Job 28 is, is telling Job and it's telling all of us. There are limits to human wisdom. There are limits to the human wisdom. Again, book of Proverbs, it's wisdom 101, Book of Ecclesiastes and Book of Job is wisdom, somebody said, in a revolt. But it's not necessarily wisdom in revolt, but it's, it's books who show us the limits of human wisdom. 
And here, just to go back to those four points, those four points, there's one God, he's good, he's all-powerful, there is evil. Today's people, today's people, uh, the modern people, when they see these four things, many of them draw the conclusion, there is no God, therefore. Right? So, so you, you, you have a lot of people, and uh, I was talking recently to somebody, uh, to a friend of mine, and he said, yeah, uh, many of my brothers uh, don't believe in, in God, and it's because of this problem of suffering. But that's the logic they usually follow. Well, uh, if God is good and God is powerful, but there's evil and suffering, therefore there's no God. Now this is, I, I just want to point out, this is a modern, modern lo logic of, uh, you know, a, a, a modern logical conclusion. Because before, before the modern world, people would never draw this conclusion. The conclusion they would draw is, hmm, Probably this person is suffering for some things that I don't understand. But in modern world, because obviously we did advance a lot and we're smarter and the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, the modern world thinks, oh, I should understand the reasons of God, why everybody's suffering. In the past, people would say, I don't understand why, why this person is suffering, but God must have his reasons because God is so much higher than me. But in today's world, unfortunately, people draw this conclusion. But again, just as a parenthesis, philosophers disagree with this. Philosophers show that this is not a warranted conclusion. So now, now philosophers have reduced this. They, they don't say, they realize that these four points cannot logically lead us to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. So now they reduce it to maybe God doesn't exist. It's, it's less probable that a good and powerful God exists if there's evil and suffering. So that they, they kind of reduce the, the, what they're trying to accomplish. But even that, the same, the same explanation is, 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 is still valuable. Just because you cannot understand God, just because you don't understand why somebody's suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't have his reasons. So this is the mystery the mystery theodicy, the one that says that uh, God's justice is somewhat different from man's, and men cannot understand the reasons, the reasons of God. There's there's a mystery. There's a theodicy deferred, and I think uh, this is a uh, very very helpful for us. Again, because uh, we are dealing with suffering and uh, evil, I just want to say a couple more things that are relevant to this. Uh, so. Some of you probably listen to sometimes or, or read uh, material by Tim Keller. So Tim Keller talks about this and points out very, very well. We live in a society which is the worst society for explaining evil and suffering. And it's not only the worst for explaining, but it's the worst society for dealing with evil and suffering. Because this society has no way to teach people why they suffer. In other words, our society, all it tries to do is minimize pain and suffering because for them, pain and suffering is all bad. There's no such thing as an educative purpose. There's no, no such thing as that. So I think he, he shows very clearly, we live in a society that is the worst society ever for dealing with tragedies and suffering. And, and you can see in the New York Times when uh, there was a shooting a few years ago, or there was an article in the New York Times was titled, Where Are the Humanists? And the article was mentioning the fact that 
where are the humanists? Because everybody said, oh, let's pray for that. Everybody borrows stuff from various religions, whether Christianity or others, to deal with this tragedy. And this non-Christian person said, where are the humanists? Because they were not there to offer comfort, right? How do you offer comfort as a, as a humanist when you see some tragedy or pain and suffering? So, so that's, that's an important point to realize. But the second one is even more important. There is actually a society, in my opinion, that is worse than the seculars for explaining suffering and pain. And that is a diluted Christianity. I want to I wanna, I wanna repeat that. That's very important. If you do not have a solid theology, you have an idea of a God, which is like grandma or like grandpa, or like a, just a wrong view of God, like, which, which is the case many times in America. So we have a lot of nominate Christians who have ideas about God that are not very biblical, are very diluted ideas about God and his sovereignty and his goodness. Actually, that's even worse than a secularist to dealing with suffering. So that's why I think it's great that in this, uh, this church and uh, you, you, we, you get to get to study the book of Job. And I saw the book that was passed along uh, by John Piper and Justin Taylor. I mean, these are just great books that teach us very good theology. And, uh, you know, take advantage of that. Read as much as you can about these books because if you have a, a strong theology, and if we understand and, and study this book of Job with an open heart and prayerfully, I think this, this will help us uh, very much in, in this study. So just uh, jumping to six and seven, the communion theodicy, think about is this valuable here? So this is a theodicy that says that sometimes people go through suffering, and notice what it says, the fundamental idea is that suffering can bring human beings closer to God. Right? Again, uh, I, I won't spend too much time on that, but th think about that as you read the book. And I'm sure, like, if we had time, people can give testimonies here about that. Like, well, one of my favorite persons, which I understand was here uh, uh, many years ago, some of you might remember, so uh, Richard Wurbrand. Richard Wurbrand was a, a, a Romanian pastor who was, who was in prison for Christ in, in Romania many years ago. He found that. Uh, he found the Jesus to the communist world, which is called now the Voice of Martyrs. But Richard Wurbrand was 14 years in prison. And you know, when you see Richard Wurbrand speaking about God and Christ, you know, he, his face just radiates. Because he, he was in prison, he, he, that brought him closer. So there's this communion theodicy. Not only that you bring, bring brought closer to God, but also that you are uh, more, more like Christ too. I think you're transformed. And of course, when I think about this communion, the other I'm also thinking about, uh, about God who suffers himself in Jesus Christ. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but obviously this is a very important thing in our theology of suffering and evil. And again, this, we do have to go to the New Testament, but the God that we believe in is a God who suffers. And one of my favorite quotations, I, I didn't put it here, is from John Stott, who says this, I couldn't believe in a guy who doesn't suffer. He said, I looked at Buddha, and I see him sit, sitting so serene and smiling. But he said, for me, for me, it's the man on the cross. Because this is the man on the cross who actually suffered, suffered for us. So, so we believe in a God who suffers and has communion with us. And uh, that, that's also 
uh, we have to think about this communion theodicy, and we can say a lot about this. But last but not least, the glory of God theodicy. Now, is this applicable here? Right, because the question that we just read, the question that we just read at the beginning was, does Job fear God for no reason? Right? So, so this uh, we have to think about. Does the book answer this question? Because uh, many times, especially when we become Christians at the beginning, we become Christians many times because of the promises, and it's understandable. Well, if you become Christian, you will have eternal life. You become Christian, you know, it will be good for you. Uh, Abraham, go from your country to the land I will show you, and I will make your name great, and I will do this and this. And Abraham, obey God. But then, you know what happened in chapter 22? Abraham is described by, by the rabbi, say, Abraham detested. He had about 10 tests. And the last test we're all familiar with, take your son, the one you love, and sacrifice it. That's a very similar to the story of Job because Abraham is basically called to take all the promises of God and burn them in the air, right? Bring him as a burnt offering. Because all the promises of God are in Isaac. Isaac, the land is there, the great name, everything. Okay, you love me and you obey me because I told you I'm going to give you these things. But will you love me even if these things go in smokes, right? And the same thing is about Job. Okay, yeah, sure, he loves you. But does he love you for nothing, for no reason? Right, that, that is the question that uh, is asked. Uh, and, uh, and of course, that does bring the glory of God to Odyssey, where many times I think, and for, for all of us I think it's very applicable, uh, we show the glory of God to people around us when we cling to God despite suffering, right? I mean, is, isn't that one of the most beautiful things in, in the world. Like uh, Again, I'm thinking about my friend David. Here he is in a wheelchair. He's giving advice to people across the, the world because he was on Zoom. We, we met with some other people. And he was telling him how the Word of God helped him get through this. He never, he never cursed God. He never, he never did that. And for me, uh, David still remains an example of a person of faith who is very encouraging to me. So uh, here we are. 2,000, 3,000 years after the book of Job was written, and what are we doing? We're studying about the Job, a man who suffered. So did Job pass the test, right? I think he, he did pass the test because we're studying the book of Job, and the reason we're studying the book of Job because Job showed the glory of God, right? A, a key text, I, I give you there, uh, a key text is Job 15, 13, where Job says this amazing statement. 13, 15 says, Though he slay me, he says, I will hope in him, right? Again, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to tell that to people uh, in, in, when I speak about this. Uh, many of you, many of us will never preach very much. Many of you will never teach. How can you, how can you give glory to God? How can you show the glory of God to other people? Well, sometimes you, may, you can show the glory of God just by simply when you suffer, when you go through, through adversity, Cling to God and maybe thank, thank God, just like Job does here in the beginning, right? We, we read here in Job 1, at the end of chapter 1, a verse that we're, we're familiar with. 
Job, we know all that he lost, in verse 20, arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Of course, the, the book doesn't end here, but you can see how this attitude, an attitude that happened many times in our lives, gives glory to God. When instead of speaking against God and instead of uh, you know, losing faith, you cling to God. And you say, you know, later, of course, he tells his wife, right, uh, just turn with me to, to chapter 2. At the end, he tells, he tells his wife in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, we, we can give many examples here. One of my favorite comes from the, what happened in the Amish country in 2006. You probably know Lancaster County, where uh, somebody came with a gun in an Amish school and he shot a bunch of kids. He shot about 10 children between 7 and 13. Five of them died. Obviously, it's a tragedy. It's evil. Uh, you can imagine the suffering. No, you can't. we cannot imagine the suffering. But what happened after that, uh, again, some of you know that many of the Amish went to visit the killer's parents to comfort them and to encourage them. And apparently half of the people who went to the funeral of the, the killer, uh, the, the killer had a wife with three children, half of the people who went to the funeral were Amish. And they all forgave, forgave the, the killer. And, you know, they, they showed forgiveness and they showed love. So people were so puzzled, you know, what's happening here, right? Uh, they, they wrote a book, sociologists four, four, four years later wrote a book about this. They couldn't explain, and they, they did recognize our society cannot produce this kind of people who forgive. Some people say, well, these are the best of us. But it's not about being the best of us, like some theologians and other critics recognize. It's not about that. It's about these guys, they believe in a certain God that is good. They believe in a God that forgives. They see some purpose in suffering, and they, they know that God has his reasons, even if they don't, we don't understand. But again, there are many examples where people who went through suffering gave glory to God from their attitude. So we, we, we have to think about, think about all this glory of God theodicy. Is it present in the book of Job? So, uh, yeah. That's uh, some uh, questions that we have to think about. And sorry, I just don't know what is the time. Uh, uh, oh, no. So as she said, I can take as long as I want. So we got, 20, we got 20, 22 more years. So yeah, <laughs> 22. So yeah, thanks. No, just kidding. But uh, no, uh, so just want to say a few things. Uh, uh, another thing that, uh, and maybe we'll come back to this, but uh, another word that sounds a little bit weird, poimenics. Poimenics is the art of leading individual suffering in body or spirit to true self-knowledge by making him aware of God. So just going back to the main, uh, the main uh, handout on the fourth definition. And I, I will skip a little bit now to, to strategies of comfort in the book of Job because I think this is very important. So the book of Job is very important for strategies of comfort in suffering. 
So I think, uh, you know, let's, let's jump from the philosophical because for most of us, the question is not philosophical. The question is personal, right? Uh, somebody suffers and what should we do? What are the strategies of comfort in the book of Job? And here, just wanna uh, turn to the third page here, the third page, strategies of comfort in the book of Job. This is what poimenics is about. And here I'm relying uh, very much on this work, uh, as you can see in the footnote, in the note there. But notice what this person says. It seems that the complex structure of the book of Job might also be understood as a counseling process. A psychologically well-experienced author, of course it's God, uh, leads his leaders, his uh, readers, through paradigmatic reactions to suffering and death. So again, I think just by reading the book and maybe listening to the book being read by, I know Pastor John Piper has a book, and like a poetic book, uh, that, that's probably part of the, the, the syllabus or, or the biography. Pastor John Piper has a book, and it was pointed to, out to me by one of my colleagues. He said he just took that book sometimes to, to people who are suffering, and they just read the book. It's like a reading, a poetic reading of the book of Job which actually said it was extremely helpful to, to, to suffering. But here, the whole book, as we read it, it will give us some strategies for comfort better than others, some better than others. So just want to point out to you a few of them. So first of all is the first one, it's Job's self-counseling. So first of all, Job, and, and I know there are people in counseling here, I think you'll find a lot of riches from, from the book of Job. First is job self-counseling, is this called this remarkable self-control? And this is what we find in the first two chapters. And you find that in life too, right? Your, your, your mother died or somebody, you know, very close, and you go to the funeral and the person seems very strong, maybe may, may also taking some medication, but it's very, very strong now, but it's very strong. You know, you go there, you say your words, and the person seems very strong, maybe doesn't even cry. So this is the stoic response, and this is what we found with Job in the beginning. Very strong. God has taken, God has given, may his name be blessed. But, uh, you know, it's misleading if we stop in Job 2, because, as you know, something else happens later, and that's the, the same thing happens in real life. So the same, the same woman goes home after her husband died. Very strong. Wow, she was so strong. And then what does she do when, when she's home? She probably starts crying. And this is exactly what happens with Job. Another method of self-counseling is Job, in chapter 3, he's going to start crying. He's going to say, curse be the day that I was born. Again, uh, many, many of you suffered a lot more than me, but probably nobody said that, curse be the day. But even if you did, you know, people argue, is, is Job sinning or not? I don't know if he's sinning, but the point is, the saintly Job, the job that is an example that remains in the Bible said those words. And if he said those words, perhaps, you know, it might be okay for you to say some very, very strong words, right? Uh, again, the saintly Job said these words and he cries out here. He, he does have a, a curse or a lament uh, discussed with one existence. So somebody said, cry is the beginning of all theology. Cry, God, uh, what's happening here? So that, that's a method of self-counseling that he uses. Another is speaking about one suffering again and again, right? That, that's what happens when you go to somebody who goes through difficulty. All he speaks about is suffering and 
It's good to listen. So these are some ways, if you want to look at it, I just want to point out a few, a few of them. Look at some of the methods that Job uses to self-counsel. I skip about Job's wife. Uh, there are some comments about Job's wife. It is right here. Uh, so this is based on this book, if anybody wants to see it. So he, this person has a couple of comments about Job's wife, but we all know what Job's wife says. You know, maybe it's intensification of desperation, or on. But there's a translation in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, adds a few more words about Job's wife. So there's possible that she also contributes in that. The question is if it's positive or negative, right? It's, it seems mostly negative here, unfortunately. But what about the three friends? The three friends. Because many times we will be in this situation. We are the friends who go to people who suffer. Can we learn something from the three friends? Right? Job 16.2. Again, a favorite quotation here. Miserable comforters are you, right? <laughs> Can we learn anything from these miserable comforters? Or I think in other places it says worthless physicians, right? Okay, can we learn something from them? Uh, apparently you can, I think you can, right? First part, silent presence. Here they show up, seven days, stay there and they cry. I think we can learn from that. I think that is useful. Many times just show up, just cry, just sit there. You know, the others, I'm not so sure. Listening, of course, it's also good. Counselors will tell us. And a, a few others here. Uh, these are all uh, strategies for comforting the book of Job. Some are more appropriate than others. And uh, again, that we have to think about. The one that, of course, I want to draw your attention is the strategies of comfort of God. So if we look at God, usually the comfort of God is seen here in, uh, in chapter 38, where God shows up. So some people think it doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what he says, but the point is that he showed up. So they think that God comforts through presence by showing up. Because as you know, the book of Job, the dialogues of Job ends with, if he only would show up, if he only would respond to me, right? And that God does show up here for him. So, so some think, this is another strategy of comfort when God shows up, uh, comfort through presence. But other ways that the book of Job, so, f so look, look, look for this, in what other ways does Job, does God comfort Job? And this, of course, draws us to the very important speeches of God. What do the speeches of God do? And, uh, and, uh, and of course, I just want to say what the speeches of God don't do. And, and you know what? The speeches of God do not answer Job's questions in, in, in general, at least not directly. And this, this is another important point. And I think it's made by Peter Crift in his book. He says, God is not the answer man. God is not the answer man. God is the questioner. He's not the answerer. And this thing happens with Jesus too. People come to Jesus and ask him questions. What did Jesus do? Jesus asked them questions. And this is another, I think, uh, thing to think about when we look at the answers of Job, at the answers of God. There, God is not answering him, but he does show up. And he is widening his horizons. He's kind of pointing to world or creation. Job, this world 
is more complex and greater than you can think. That is a problem, of course, with suffering. Suffering makes us think only about ourselves, and it's, it's normal, about my pain, about me. I'm the center of the universe. But God shows up, and a little bit widens his horizon. Job, this world is more complicated and more mysterious than you can imagine. And it's not just about you. So in a sense, God is not the answerer, he's the questioner. And through his questions, not only widens his horizons, but I think it's trying to show him that things in the world is much more complex than you can think about. But one, one other thing I added here, so this is a modified uh, list of what is found here. So I added this, and I want to just to point, draw your attention as you study this book, and I, I'm sure it's in the guidelines there in your booklet. What about the behemoth and the Leviathan? <clears throat> this, is a, this is an important one. Behemoth and Leviathan, the reason they're important is because God spends an inordinate, inordinate time an ordinary space talking about behemoth and Leviathan. And maybe you read this and it's like, uh, what, what's, what's this about, right? So classical response, many people say, well, he's just talking about the hippopotamus and the crocodile in poetic language. And, and that is possible. I heard recently a sermon by Derek Thomas and he said, you know, let's assume as the crocodile and the hippopotamus. Why did God create them, he said. Why did God create alligators? He was speaking in Florida, right? He said, I don't know. But then he said, you know, maybe he created them for the glory of God somehow, you know. It's, uh, but he said, you know, I gave money for the polar bear. I gave 10 bucks for the save the polar bear, but I will not give money to save the crocodile, right? Or Leviathan. It seems like a cruel creature here. So maybe it's just a crocodile. Maybe it's just a behemoth. Maybe God is just telling him, look. I created all the good animals and the beautiful ones, but I also created this. And all of these things, even if you don't understand, were created for my glory. That, that's a possible response. But it's possible, it's possible, and uh, again, uh, more and more people seem to go in this direction, that actually all of these, these beasts, because that's what behemoth means. Behemoth is a plural of Hebrew, which means basically beasts. So it's probably describes this beastly, per, beastly thing that uh, you know, as, uh, you know. For example, Christopher Ash associates with death. What if this is the the beast that represents death and Leviathan? It's a, the symbol of chaos and evil that exists in the world. And God is telling Job, "Look, this world, the way it was created, has a lot of evil and chaos, and you cannot control that. You cannot control that, but I can control that." I can control that. I'm the only one who can. Can you play with all these evil that exists in the world? Can you control it? No, you can't, but I can. And one day I will defeat it. So this is the interpretation of Dane Ortland. One day I will defeat this evil. The illustration that Christopher Ash gives, I think, is beautiful. So you go into somebody's house. There are a lot of bad dogs there, and they're trying to bite you. And they're trying to jump, jump, jump on you when you go into the courtyard. And the question is like, oh, wait a minute. Is anybody restraining these dogs? Or am I, am I dead, basically? And, uh, you know, he's basically in, in this, uh, this, uh, this uh, response of God, maybe what God is trying to say here is this, look, Job, there is a lot of evil, but I am restraining this evil. 
I'm restraining and one day I will defeat this evil. Is this what God is saying again? Something to think about. But uh, of course, based on the further revelation, we do uh, realize that, uh, of course, God does tell us much more clearly in the New Testament that there is evil, it's very real. And Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection will one day destroy this evil which is now exists, but is still restrained by God. Of course, we see the restraint from the book from the very beginning where Satan wants to do something, but God says, sure, you do, but so much. I'm restraining here. Again, going back to Tim Keller, I like what he says. Uh, he says, God gives Job, uh, no, God gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. That's, that's what he says. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. He gives him enough rope to hang himself because basically Job is trying to, Satan is trying to say, nobody serves you without reason, without waiting for bless, blessing. That's his point. And actually that's, his point is disproved. Again, we are studying, we're reading the book of Job thousands of years after because Satan, of course, was restrained and uh, Job did show, did held, hold on to God despite all this evil and suffering. So these, these are some, some thoughts you might want to think and, and think about the strategies of comfort as you read. Would this comfort you? Would this not comfort you? Again, uh, don't forget in wisdom, uh, very important is timing. So sometimes retribution theology is okay. Maybe you, you might tell somebody, hey, look, I told you not to not to drink so much, you know, you, you have to correct your life. It's retribution. Sometimes it's appropriate, but sometimes it's very inappropriate. Wisdom is about timing. It's not only about knowing what to do, but knowing when to do it. Timing is very important. So maybe these strategies may apply at some time. Maybe they won't apply at some time. So... Uh, I'm just going to uh, take a few, should we take a few? And then uh, I can continue a little bit, but maybe take a few questions. Is that? Okay, so maybe I'll just take a short break here and uh, if you just want to have some questions. But I just want to warn you that I'm going to answer with questions. <laughs> I'm trying to send a, yeah, or, or comment, yeah. Yeah, so, so the question is uh, about the context when this was written. Uh, was it written about 4,000 years ago and uh, what kind of uh, language they wrote it in? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, looked on the, I looked on the information about this and I said that I'm going to talk about the context and the historical, but actually I wasn't planning to talk about that, but, but it's, a, it's a great question. It's a very relevant question. So uh, just want to say about the book of Job, uh, traditionally it is believed that it was written very early maybe one of the earliest books, which is understandable because if you look at the beginning that we just read, it looks like the, the description is from the patriarchal times. So again, I didn't give any background, but most likely Job is from the land of Edom, which is pretty remarkable because we have this example from the Bible of a person who suffers who's not even an Israelite. This is, everybody agrees, is not an Israelite. This is not an Israelite, but it again shows us the international outlook of wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible recognizes that there can be wisdom in other people. Of course, this is a person who does worship the one true God. That, that is agreed too. But it's a foreigner. And most likely from the, uh, from the land of Edom. Again, it's not sure about the location, but Septuagint does support. Which Septuagint is the earliest interpretation. It's a translation. 
but every translation is an interpretation. Septuagint, Greek translation, situates Job in the land of Edom. And it's very likely because there's a lot of wisdom in the East, as you find from other places in the Bible. So that when was it written and, and at what time? Uh, okay, so uh, again, traditionally, it is believed to have been written even before the book of Moses. So let's, let's, let's just give it a date about 1500 before Christ. So that's about 3,500 years uh, before. Now, it wouldn't be a problem about writing because there's writing at that time. It's not, it's not maybe uh, this kind of writing like Hebrew is not written yet down, but of course we have a Akkadian and we have a Egyptian writing at that time. So it's not a problem about the script, but uh, uh, now because you asked this question, sorry, I'm gonna take a little bit longer, but uh, the language, the language of the book is consistently by, at least by modern scholarship, put somewhere around 500 before Christ. And here we have to be careful because it, it may have been written in 500 before Christ, but that doesn't mean that the story goes back only that old. So it is very possible and likely that Job existed much, much earlier. And you know, we have to understand that a lot of that culture was very, a very oral culture. They did memorize stuff, they knew a lot, so it was passed, passed along and it was written later. It's a possibility. I personally do not buy that because I did do my thesis on the verb in the book of Job, a very exciting topic. If you want to hear about that, no, it's not. But, uh, but the truth is that uh, one, one reason that sometimes people look at the book and say that it's a little bit later because they say that there's Aramaic words in the book. So again, sorry, sorry if you asked me that question, but I have to just explain a little bit. But the problem with this Aramaic in the book of Job is that uh, people, when they find some Aramaic words, they usually say, oh, it's later. But that, that doesn't necessarily is true because the problem is that Aramaic also can show that the language is actually early because, because Hebrew and Aramaic at one point were together. So if it's very early, there's a lot of words that, uh, that are, are very similar. So they, they separate a little bit, and then when the people go into captivity, they also get together and, and they borrow again from Aramaic. So the language having Aramaic could mean that it's late, but sometimes it can mean that it's early. And plus, this is also recognized in poetry, you have more so-called Aramaisms, because in poetry, you have very elevated language. Poets who write to poetry, usually they're, they're the top, uh, top uh, people in uh, education, and they know a lot of words, like even, even today, if you write poetry, you might use like a French or at least a more rare word. And that rare word is not necessarily an Aramaism, but it might be a rare Hebrew word, or it's called common Semitic. But the truth is that a lot of people, based on the language, do date it a little bit later, at least when it was written. But the uh, fact is, uh, it's, it's impossible almost to date it from a linguistic point of view. And uh, my opinion, it was written at least a thousand years before Christ, or maybe the time of Solomon. And Job probably existed even earlier than that. But uh, that's, that's all I think we can say. Uh, the truth is there, there's uncertainty, just like most of the books in the Old Testament are, we do not know who wrote them. That, that's, that's a fact. It doesn't say Job wrote it. We don't know who wrote Second Samuel. It says Samuel, but Samuel already died in First Samuel. So probably Samuel... <laughs> So even the, most, no, even the most conservative person is not going to say Samuel, by prophecy, wrote Second Samuel. No, it's just named Samuel. We do not know some of these, uh, some of these questions, but uh, it seems to me that it was written sometimes around a thousand years before Christ, maybe the, during the time of Solomon. It's very possible it was, it was, it was a time of uh, 
literature and uh, reaches. And, but the person seems to have lived much, much earlier. Yeah. So, but, but that's the beauty of the Psalms, is the beauty of wisdom literature. It doesn't matter when it was written. Wisdom, literature, and Psalms are cross-cultural, are cross-temporal, we can say. It applied then, it applies now. It doesn't matter that much the context. It helps sometimes, it helps, but it's largely irrelevant. We can still use that Psalm. We can still use this book when we go through suffering and, and pain, so. Any, uh, okay, so let me just uh, just go a little bit further, just just mention a couple more things. So I just wonder if we, if we turn to page number two. This I think is very beautiful, and I think it's important. It's if you look at the, the structure of the book, so uh, I would uh, I would keep this uh, with uh, with my study as you as you do your study because this is the best structure I personally found, and it's good to have it in your mind. Uh, as Pam already mentioned, uh, there is a prose in the beginning. The first two chapters are prose. Is the prologue is the introduction. That's the part that we're most familiar with, and then the last part is also prose from 42. If you look, at the epilogue is from 42, seven to the end the restoration of Job's fortune, that's prose. The rest is all poetry. But uh, the reason I put this, uh, and I found it very useful, because you see the parallel between chapter three, poetry, Job curses the day of his birth, and then we see Job's retraction, it seems to retract his curse at the end. And between these, these uh, sections, we have three dialogues with his friends, so that's a large section, four to 27, and then we have that wisdom poem, which again is very important, because it tells us that wisdom belongs to God. And all you can do is fear God and turn away from evil. That is your wisdom. There is a wisdom above you that you do not understand. But your wisdom here on earth is this, turn away from evil and fear God. That's your wisdom, your human wisdom, which is important, it's very crucial. Again, just, just, just to remind you, this is the case in all three wisdom books. The book of Job starts with the fear of the Lord, has many times in the middle of the book the fear of the Lord, and ends with the fear of the Lord. The woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. So it starts with the fear of the Lord, there's a lot of stuff in the middle, and it ends with the woman who fears the Lord. Job puts the fear of the Lord right in the middle of the book, and if you study Ecclesiastes, it puts the fear of the Lord in a few places, but especially at the end. This is the end of man to fear God and to obey his commandments. This is the whole of man. This is crucial for us. We may not understand, but there is wisdom above us. There's limits to human wisdom, but there's things that we can do, and that is fear God and turn away from evil. And then there are three monologues. Again, this is a little bit, uh, taking a little bit of liberty because uh, God's speech, it is mostly monologue, but it's also addressed to Job, and Job does reply a little bit, but it's mostly God speaking there. But I think this is a good way to have in mind the, the structure of the book, and I hope you find it useful. So I think, uh, I think that's, that's about all I wanted to say as way of introduction. Again, if I'd just like to take just a few more questions. Uh, if there's time, and I think hopefully this will be helpful for you as you 
as you study the book together because ultimately that's where you learn the most. Yeah, please, John. Yeah, so, oh, sorry, sorry. So there was a, there was a question. Uh, the first question was about Elihu. If Elihu was the son of uh, uh, Abraham's wife, Keturah. So that was the question. Just wanted to repeat it for, for here. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And then there was another question about uh, Job 42.10. Job 42.10. And the Lord, I'm going to read. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So what does this verse teach us about our prayers? So, uh, yeah. I really don't know. I really don't know about this. I have to look at it a little bit more. I just think this is related to what, what happened. Now, uh, does this teach us anything about praying for our friends? And uh, I, I really don't know. Don't know. We'll have to think about this a little bit more. I think you'll study it in your group. But let me say a, a little bit about the verse before, because I, I showed you some key texts that pay special attention. And one of the key texts is this one, because it's a little bit earlier. Notice what... Uh, what God says about Job here in verse uh, 42. We're still in 42, verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, this is another key text for interpretation of the book. Why what is God saying here and why? Right, so, so he's angry. Clearly, he's angry against his friends because the friends uh, were trying to just had the wrong theology and the, the way we're speaking about God, they were just wrong. But the question is, how did Job spoke what is right as the servant Job has? So again, I'm not here to answer a question. I'm just to, to point out to you the things that you must answer to understand the book well. I do want to say one thing that probably you will not see it elsewhere, at least not much. It's possible that the translation here is a little bit wrong. Uh, actually, a strong argument can be made that it's wrong. In other words, a better translation may be, you have not spoken of me. Instead of you have not spoken of me, God may be saying you have not spoken to me as my servant Job. Actually. There's a very strong argument to be made based on the Hebrew. So the preposition that is used is not about me, but you did not speak to me. In other words, it's possible that God is saying, look, Job did say stupid things. I mean, because God does tell him, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? He did say some, some stupid things. I mean, so, sorry to use this word, but it's true. Now, uh, again, something to think about. What did he say wrong? What did Job say wrong? And one, one clear thing that he said wrong is that many times God, God, uh, Job tells to God, you're my enemy. You were against me. You're doing this. And we, we know the story. Now, God is not against Job. God is bragging about Job. Hey, have you seen my servant Job? That's, he's completely wrong on that point, at least. But think about other things that he was just wrong. Or there's some things that he's just wrong. In which case here, maybe it's true that God says he didn't speak right about me, but he spoke right. And the thing that he did right is that he actually spoke to me. 
You guys were doing a lot of theology, talking about God, but Job spoke to me. He was honest, of course, there's another thing. He was honest, he was direct, and you know, maybe that's what we have to do. Of course, that's something that the Bible teaches us. I remember listening uh, or reading a, a long time ago a sermon by John Piper, and I really appreciate it from Psalm 23. Psalm 23 that we all love. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in green pasture. He does this, he does this, he does this, right? This is theology. When you talk about God, he does this, he does this. But then he says, even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Now theology becomes more like prayer. When you go through trials, you don't speak about God, you speak to God. And maybe this is what Job does right. He speaks to God, and not only he speaks to God, but he's honest to God. But he still clings to God. He still stays in relationship. Again, I like, I like Peter Kreeft. He Job throws plates at God, but he stays in that relationship. A lot of us are polite. We're still in a relationship, but we have separate bedrooms, and we don't really talk to God. So Job doesn't do that. Job throws, throws uh, plates at God. I don't know if anybody's done that here at home. Hopefully not, but stays in the relationship. Stays in the relationship, and I think that's true. You know, maybe, maybe the reason God, uh, Job, God appreciates Job is because Job was honest. He stayed in the relationship, and he spoke to God. And I think that that's, that's another thing that we learn a lot in the Bible. You know, learn the sounds of lament, learn things, learn how to, to lament. But uh, I think another thing we learn from, from the book of Job so thank you for your time, and uh, sorry if I went too long. I don't know, but thanks. Thanks.